If you have a Bible, you can open it. We're going to be in John chapter 7 this morning. If you don't own a Bible, there should be one in the seat under you or in front of you. And if you don't have one, uh, you can get a nice one in the lost and found. Um, So, all right. Before we get started, though, this morning, um, I want to spend a little bit of time praying. I actually asked if I could kind of lead us in this um, this morning, and we're entering into the end of summer vacation and into a new school year. And with that come a lot of challenges for a lot of people, a lot of joys too, but some challenges. And so um, I'm going to not make you keep standing, but just kind of want everybody to have a feel uh, for the church family and just to be able to look around the room. And so if you are a student or parent of kids in school, including homeschool, every level of schooling, would you stand up for me just briefly? So this impacts quite a few people, right? You see this? Yeah, pretty, pretty incredible. Okay, you can be seated. I want to spend some time praying. Um, as students get ready to enter a new school year or already have, they're going to be up against different things. Our culture doesn't make this easy. And so it can be social challenges uh, with friends. It can be curriculum challenges. It can be leadership challenges and parents as well. Um, A lot of times those challenges come in the form of all of those things, but it could also be a kid entering their senior year, and it's that first kid that's getting ready to go to college, and you have all those emotions, and and so uh, just quite a bit going on uh, for families, and so I'm going to be quiet for a few moments, and it's going to be silent, and and that can oftentimes feel kind of awkward, but you saw people stand up, and even if you just kind of remember one of the people in the room that stood up, and just pray for the Lord to bless them in this upcoming school year. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for education. Thank you that you've given us minds to use and you've given us places to go to learn, whether that's at home or in a school building. Or, and you've given us the ability to advance in our learning and to grow and to develop. And we just thank you for those things. And God, these things, uh, while they are a blessing, can also be challenging. There's quite a bit that students and parents are up against in a new school year. And so we just ask for your blessing on them. God, I do ask you for peace and wisdom and discernment, but I also ask, Father, that your spirit would give them a boldness, that the way that they live, the way they navigate decision-making would be done so in such a way that the watching world around them would get a glimpse and be able to see that you are good. And we trust you for this in Jesus' name. Amen. Likewise, I'd like to not just pray for students and parents, but those in our church who are teachers or administrators, and that's at every level. So we would say um, elementary school, middle school, high school, college, graduate school, homeschool, all of it. And so if you are a teacher or an administrator or a leader um, in that area, would you briefly just stand just for a moment so we can acknowledge you? Now we can clap for them. You don't... I was like, second service, I said, why are you clapping for the students? They haven't even passed their classes yet. Like, so, but thank you for the teachers and administrators. And if you would, just keep them in mind. Uh, we're going to have another time just to pray. And so be quiet again for a few moments. And would you just pray a blessing over those leaders and teachers, parents, 
Um, they, they need wisdom and discernment navigating our current cultural moment. And so uh, let's pray. Father, we thank you for our teachers who have impacted our lives in such tremendous ways. God, we thank you for the administrators who seek to represent you in a difficult situation, a difficult cultural moment, as they navigate decisions that are being made for them and decisions that they need to make. So God, our prayer for them is for peace, for clarity, for wisdom, for discernment. God, I pray that they would also feel the Spirit in them, leading them to boldness, that they would stand firm. Father, they would do so with gentleness and kindness, but they would stand firm. So a watching world would be able to see and attest that you are good. And we'll trust you for this in Jesus' name. Amen. When you were growing up, what came to your mind with the question, who is Jesus? What came to mind when you pictured Jesus? Now, some of you grew up in church. Some of your earliest memories are going to be in a Sunday school class with a flannel graph telling you exactly what to think about Jesus. And maybe you've seen uh, all kinds of advancement in technology, but you've learned a lot about Jesus. And so when you think about Jesus, there are certain things that absolutely come to your mind. Others, myself included, did not grow up uh, in church. And so my image of Jesus, what came to my mind when I think about Jesus, was heavily influenced by the culture and the world around me. And so different things popped up into my mind. Now, if you grew up in church, uh, one of the things I noticed when I became a Christian as a senior in high school, one of the things that I noticed was that uh, there was uh, usually in many of the churches that I went to, there was a framed picture uh, a picture in a frame that would depict Jesus as a shepherd. So maybe you saw a picture similar to this, right? And so you would see this picture, and so you kind of were conditioned when you thought about Jesus to picture a very handsome American Jesus taking care of some sheep. <laughs> and so that's, that's an image that, man, that's all over the place. Shortly after I became a Christian, there was this kind of movement in churches to make Jesus more masculine. They just thought he was too gentle. He needed to be rough and tough and macho. And so you'd see all these different depictions of Jesus with muscles, and this is the only one I could find on the Internet. So... <laughs> right? And so I found Matt Wilson posing, or yeah, Matt Thompson posing as Jesus here. So um, there it is. And so you see that picture and you're like, man, it's almost like, like not cool, right? It's not cool to do that, but it's a picture that, man, that was all over the place. It's like macho, tough man, Jesus. And then there was people that said, well, you don't want to go that far, but you still want Jesus to not be like Weak, And so you wanted him to kind of be like a guy that is like a man's man, but you could approach him and have a cup of coffee. And so they did the carpenter thing overboard, and they did pictures like this. And so it's like, no, he's a carpenter. You want to have a cup of coffee with that guy, but you're kind of scared of him. And so, you, you know, that mix. Maybe for you it was images that come to mind when you think of Jesus were actors, right? And so you had different people that portray Jesus, like Jim Caviezel, right, in The Passion of the Christ. And maybe you watch that movie at an influential moment in your life, and so every time you picture Jesus, that's what you picture. Or, like many people now, they picture 
The Chosen, right? That's what you, you came to your mind. I've watched that show. Now that's the image and the picture that I have that comes to my mind when I picture these things. When I was young growing up, when, when people would talk about Jesus, they would often associate him with this guy, this actor, right? This, right? Right? Who's this? Okay, good. Yeah, everyone under 20. I don't know who that guy is. Tom Hanks, where's he, right? So, but that's how you associated Jesus, is this kind, kind of meek, wants to be everybody's best friend and neighbor. What about now? When you think about Jesus, what comes to your mind now? What's the image? What's the picture? How would you answer the question if it were asked to you? Who is Jesus? I think it's important. A.W. Tozer famously wrote, the most important thing about a man, the most important thing about a man, is what comes to his mind when he thinks about God. I think he's right. I think the most important thing about us is what comes to our minds when we say, who is Jesus? That is the most important thing about who you are. And everybody answers that question. But I've learned, even as a follower of Jesus, that over the years, I've noticed that many people, Christians included, have a woefully inadequate view of Jesus. Woefully inadequate. Philip Yancey, in his book, It's a really good read, The Jesus I Never Knew. He calls Jesus the unexpected Messiah. And what he means by that, he fleshes it out, and I'll just summarize it for you, is this, is that for centuries, scholars had mastered the Old Testament. They had studied the scriptures. They knew with clarity what they were looking for when it came to the Messiah. And they had studied it. They were anticipating it. They were searching for it. And yet, when he showed up, looked them right in the eyes, they missed it. How is it? that those who were the experts in religion, those who were the ones who were anticipating the coming Messiah, could be face-to-face with him and completely miss him. How is that possible? Let me flip that question onto us today in 2023. How is it that the most informed and connected generation in the history of the world, with more podcasts to listen to, sermons and classes to take, online, more access to knowledge and books. We can order books and they arrive before we've paid Amazon for them. We have access to so much information and study and we still miss him. How's that possible? That's what we're going to see in John's gospel. Uh, This is just my observation. You know, we, we studied John's gospel in the beginning of the year and we started this whole year walking through John's gospel. And we took a pause in the summer to study the Psalms, and today we pick it back up. And one of the things I noticed in rereading John's Gospel this past week is just sitting down and reading it was this conclusion. White sound elementary, but it is fascinating how it jumps off the page when you sit and read it. John was brilliant. Brilliant. And he was fascinated with explaining the intricacies of Jesus and his deity on every page of his gospel. One of the goals John set out to do was to answer the question for all of his readers, who is Jesus? Who is he? And he went into detail about the divinity of Jesus. And he used imagery from the Old Testament. And he was a master at bringing this picture together so that his readers would be able to answer that question. But what you notice about John in his writing is not just intellectual. He was also a pastor, and he wrote with the heart of a pastor. When you read his gospel, you realize, man, you're going to be challenged intellectually. The the most intellectual people in the history of the world have been challenged by John's writings, whether in his gospel or in his letters. They're very challenged by him. And at the same time, you're encouraged spiritually and emotionally when you read through this gospel. He's pastoring his audience. Because for John, the most important thing was to lead everything and everyone to Jesus, to highlight Jesus. 
And so that's what he does. And so you read through this gospel, and that question will jump off the page. And you'll notice this thread through John's gospel. He's constantly trying to answer the question, who is Jesus? And so you see it all over the place in the miracles of Jesus, the teachings of Jesus. And it kind of gets highlighted right here in the chapter that we're going to look at for the next two weeks. This week and next week will be in chapter 7. And at the end of chapter 6, going into chapter 6, you see this highlighted. But it goes back even to chapter 5. Matt Thompson, muscular picture there. Uh, he preached through chapter 5 for us, right? And in chapter 5, Jesus heals uh, the man by the pool. And when he heals the man by the pool, if you remember, the religious leaders, they don't like it. But think about this. We are often overlooking these things when we read our Bible because we get so used to the stories that we forget to like slow down for the details. These religious leaders got so upset with Jesus that they wanted to kill him. Now, I hope that none of us have been to that point in our experience with anger. But I think most of us can picture what it probably looked like when these religious leaders got to that place. They wanted him dead. And so his father, he didn't die, but he continued to teach. And he had a huge following, so they couldn't kill him. All these people showing up wanting to hear from Jesus. Well, why? Because he was doing incredible things. He's healing people, he's taking care of the poor, he's doing all these miracles, all these signs, all these wonders, and so people wanted to see it. And like a lot of people today, they just wanted him to do that next thing. They had this image of Jesus burned into their brains about what they needed to get from him until he started to teach, and so that's what he does in chapter 6. He turns around to the people and he begins to address them and teach them, and he's teaching them about what it takes to actually follow him, to count the cost. It's not going to be easy to follow me. He says to follow me is going to require complete and total allegiance you would submit your whole life to me as the Lord of your life. And he's teaching them that, and all of a sudden, they don't want to hear it. So there at the end of chapter 6, what do you see? You see all these people that were disciples and followers of Jesus. When he starts teaching about who he really is, and he's not just doing these miracles, they turn around and they walk away because they don't want to hear that. Why? Because they had a picture of what Jesus should do and what he should look like. And when he didn't live up to it, they wanted nothing to do with him. And so they turned around and they left. And now in chapter 7, you're going to see Jesus engage with some people, and the question's going to arise again. Who is he? Because he's not who we thought he was, and so they walk away. But who is Jesus? Would you stand for the reading of God's word this morning out of John chapter 7? Beginning in verse 1, John writes these words. After this, so after these disciples had left, after they had abandoned him, Jesus went around in Galilee. So he's moving around doing different things. He did not want to go about in Judea because the Jewish leaders there were looking for a way to kill him. But when the Jewish festival of tabernacles was near, Jesus' brother said to him, Leave Galilee and go to Judea so that your disciples may see your works that you do. No one who wants to become a public figure acts in secret. Since you're doing these things, show yourself to the world. For even his own brothers did not believe in him. Therefore, Jesus told them, My time is not yet here for you. Any time will do. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify that its works are evil. You go to the festival. I'm not going to go up to the festival because my time has not yet fully come. And after he had said this, he stayed in Galilee. However, after his brothers had left for the festival, he went also, not publicly, but in secret. Now at the festival, the Jewish leaders were watching for Jesus and asking, where is he? Among the crowds, there were widespread whispering about him. Some said, he's a good man. Others replied, no, he deceives the people. But no one said anything publicly about him for fear of the leaders. Not until halfway through the festival did Jesus go up to the temple courts and begin to teach. The Jews were amazed and asked, how did this man get such learning without having been taught? 
Jesus answered, my teaching is not my own. It comes from the one who sent me. Anyone who chooses to do the will of God will find out whether my teaching comes from God or whether I speak on my own. Whoever speaks on their own does so to gain personal glory. But he who speaks, who seeks the glory of the one who sent him is a man of truth. There is nothing false about him. Has not Moses given you the law, yet not one of you keeps the law? Why are you trying to kill me? You are demon-possessed, the crowd answered. Who's trying to kill you? Jesus said to them, I did one miracle, and you're all amazed. Yet because Moses gave you circumcision, though it actually did not come from Moses, but from the patriarchs, you circumcise a boy on the Sabbath. Now, if a boy can be circumcised on on the Sabbath so that the law of Moses may not be broken, why are you angry with me for healing a man's whole body on the Sabbath? Stop judging by mere appearances, but instead judge correctly. This is God's word. You can be seated. So immediately, after these disciples abandon Jesus at the end of chapter 6, you begin chapter 7 with this wrestling match he's having with his brothers. You can comically say that his brothers were doing what brothers do. They were poking at him. But John tells us a little more insight there in verse 5. Right away, John tells us that his brothers did not believe in him. That sets the tone for this interaction in verses 1 through 9. Right? It's not just his brothers poking at him. His brothers didn't believe in him, so they are mocking him. They're not just having fun with him. They are saying, oh, if you want to build a big audience, go do these things. If, you could, if everything you're saying is true, Jesus, why would you hang out in Galilee when you can go to Judea? There's way more people up there for the festival, and you could have your big audience. Because people that are trying to be a public figure, which is obviously what you're doing, Jesus, they don't do things in secret. They go in public. And so Jesus says, no, I don't want to go there. And his hesitation to not want to go to Judea is understandable, right? Because, again, back in chapter 5, the last time he was there, the religious leaders, they wanted him dead. They didn't just... They wanted to kill him. And so he knew that his time for dying was going to come, and it hadn't yet come. So to go back and test them would not have worked out well in that moment, especially if his brothers wanted to create a big scene. And so he says, I'm not going to go the way that you want to go. So they go up. Had he gone with them, they had an agenda for him. And so he waits, and he goes up in secret. And he's up there and just observing things before he stands up and he teaches in the temple courts. And he's observing different things because he wants to be careful. Why? Because these religious leaders were seeking him out. In fact, this is the last time when he goes up into Judea that he'll go there before he dies. It's just the next part of the year where he's going to be crucified. So everything he's doing is very, very intentional here. And so he makes his way up there. And when you're reading your Bible and you come to certain uh, parts of your Bible, it's really helpful to pay attention to tone. Okay, You don't don't hear that often, but when you're reading through a, a passage of Scripture... You pick up on certain things. Here in chapter 7, there are three verses that set the tone for this entire interaction. The first is verse 11. In verse 11, it says that the religious leaders were looking for Jesus and asking, where is he? Well, that sets the tone. Why? Because these religious leaders should have been paying attention to the festival that they were supposed to be leading, and they didn't. They were so preoccupied with their hatred of Jesus that they've neglected their responsibilities and were looking for him to show up. So everyone that's coming through, they're looking for Jesus because that hatred had fueled them. And I noticed, like, it's not just true then. That's been true of Jesus ever since. The religious leaders, the cultural elites, will oftentimes not simply want someone to not listen to Jesus. They want to do away with Jesus altogether. It's not enough anymore, even in our culture today, to say to somebody, well, if you want to follow Jesus, that's fine. You can follow Jesus. I'm just not going to follow Jesus. No, it's like not only do I not want you to follow Jesus, but it's wrong if you do, and you shouldn't follow him anymore. They don't just want you to not follow him. They want to do away with him altogether, and that's the same thing that's been true of Jesus from the beginning. 
It wasn't enough to tell people not to follow him. It wasn't enough to try to tell his disciples not to follow him. They wanted to kill him and do away with him. But the other thing that sets the tone is right there in verse 12. In verse 12, the tone is set by the rest of the crowd, which has been true ever since as well. The rest of the crowd, it says, began to whisper about him. Why? Because they'd seen these miracles in the first six chapters that John lays out for us. And they'd heard the teaching, and the miracles and the teaching collide, and now they're left with this question, who is this guy? No one else can do what he does. No one else can teach how he teaches. Who is Jesus? And they begin to whisper and wonder about him the way that the world has ever since he came. And so John's going to lay out for us, there's five answers to the question that we're given in this passage alone. Five different people give a response to the question, who is Jesus? But I want to say before we get to that is this, why is it important that we answer that question? Well, ma- many people in the room that are Christians, you're a follower of Jesus, you would say that I have to answer the question, who is Jesus? Because it determines my eternal state, my eternal salvation, and you would be true, like that'd be right. Right? Jesus says of himself, John 14, chapter 6, we've already preached on this, but he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And what he's saying is this, there is a heaven and there is a hell, and they last forever. And the only way to get to heaven and avoid hell is through Jesus Christ. It's the only way. And so we would say, yeah, that's true. I absolutely believe that. Jesus is the only way for me to get to heaven. So I have to answer the question accurately. I have to see him well, who is Jesus? But what I've noticed in the church is that many people who answer that question fail to continue answering that question. And what you see in a passage like this is that you don't just answer the question, who is Jesus, one time in your life. You have to come back to it every single day. Every day you wake up, it is a question of who is Jesus. Why? Because he's not just a model to be followed. He's the Lord to be worshipped. And if he is the primary source of life for you, we'll talk more about that next week, Then every day you wake up, you're answering the question again, who is Jesus? Who is he when it comes to my marriage? Who is it when he comes to my job and how I should conduct my job, my studies, my approach to finances? Who is Jesus when it comes to raising my children? Who is Jesus? I have to answer this in every area of my life. Who is he? And so John gives us five responses that I have found very common throughout history. The first one's right there in verse 12. As they're whispering, some people say, well, he's a good man. Jesus, he's a good man. And why do they say that? Well, it's not hard to say that about a guy who welcomed children to come sit on his lap. It's not hard to say that about a guy who cared for the poor. It's not hard to say that about a guy who made sure that women were taken care of. It's not hard to say that about somebody who has lived so well. And so you hear people in his day say, look, despite what everybody's getting worked up about, this is a good man. And look, the same thing's true in our culture today. Many people will say, man, Jesus, I'm not going to argue that he historically existed. That's just intellectually dishonest. There was a man in history named Jesus, and he lived during this period of history, and he did these things. And I'll tell you, looking at his life, that was a good man. He started a revolution of love. He told people to love each other and care for each other, to take care of the poor. He honored women and children. He was a good man, but he wasn't God. I'll acknowledge he was a really good man, but he wasn't God. And, and I'll acknowledge he was a good moral teacher. So the question is, is that really the answer to the question? Who is Jesus? Is he just a good man and a good teacher? Now, scholars throughout history have brought this truth about that question. Is Jesus simply a good moral man and a good moral teacher? The answer is not only is it no, it's that it's impossible for that to be true. 
impossible. Why? Because mainly of what Jesus said about himself. When Jesus said about himself, if you want to follow me, you have to die to yourself. You have to give full allegiance to me in every area of your life. I'm the only way to God. I am God. These claims don't come from a good moral teacher. A good moral teacher would not lie. And so if Jesus is saying, I'm God, he can't in the same breath say that he's good unless he's God. Perhaps the most famous person to argue this is C.S. Lewis in a book that if you're in the Colson Fellows, you've had to read this book, Mere Christianity. And in Mere Christianity, Lewis, he wasn't the first to do it, but he articulated it really well, that Jesus is one of three things. He's a liar, he's a lunatic, or he's Lord. Right? But he can't simply be a good moral teacher based on what he said and claimed about himself. Well, in an article written after Mere Christianity that you can find online, Lewis wrote these words. He said this, We may note in passing that he, Jesus, was never regarded as a mere moral teacher. He did not produce that effect on any of the people who actually met him. He produced mainly three effects. Hatred, which we see in our passage. Terror, which we see in our passage. And adoration. There was no trace of people expressing mild approval of Jesus. That's fascinating. And yet, that's what so many people want today. They want to be able to have a mild approval of Jesus. Say, yeah, Jesus, you're good, man. I, I mean, I actually think you are the way to heaven, and I love this. And I'm even cool with the money thing, like giving money. That's fine, right? But like this thing, I'm not giving this up. You can be Lord of everything else, but I'm going to hold on to this. Why? Because you want a mild approval. You want to say, I approve Jesus until it gets uncomfortable. And that's good. And th- but what he says here is this. You can't have that. Why? Because of what Jesus said about himself. And when you hear him teach about who he was, that to follow him required total allegiance, people respond in two ways. They'll run away from him like they did at the end of chapter 6, or they fall before him and worship him, like his brothers eventually would. It's a fascinating thing, chapter 7. You see those first nine verses, you're like, man, what's wrong with his brothers? They were in process. They kept being worked on. This doesn't happen overnight all the time, but... Please take note that Jesus' brother James, if you've read the book that he wrote, he sure did come to believe. He led the church in Jerusalem, and he died for Jesus. He died for him because he came to believe that he is who he claimed to be. Well, if he can't simply be a good man, what else? Well, there in verse 12, they say, no, 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 he's not a good man. He's a deceiver. And what does that mean? It means that Jesus knowingly and intentionally deceived the crowds. He knew how to say the right things. He was the ultimate salesman. So he could get up in front of a crowd and win them over. And he knew he was doing it. And he was manipulating the crowds to come to believe that he was God so that he could have power. And so sure, he did claim those things about himself. And he was a deceiver, a manipulator. But that's not all, right? Look down at verse 20. And after he stands up and teaches in the temple courts... And he reminds them, you're trying to kill me because of what I've said about myself, claiming to be God. They say, you're out of your mind, man. They say, you're demon-possessed. Contextually, what that means is you've lost your mind. You're a lunatic. You're crazy. There's no way. That's not true. Meaning, you actually believe what you're saying, Jesus. So not only are you not a good moral teacher, but you actually do believe that you're God. And so you're not just someone who's deceiving people. You're actually crazy. You're out of your mind. 
So not a good moral man because of what he claimed to be and ended up not being, according to them. And he, he, can't, possibly, uh, he, he can't possibly be God, so he must be manipulating everybody. But now they're getting a glimpse of the fact that, wait a second, after they heard him teach, they're like, maybe he's not crazy, or, or maybe he's not a deceiver. Maybe he actually is crazy because he believes what he's saying about himself. And so the question to ask is this. If, if Jesus, if we're claiming that Jesus is a liar and he's a manipulator, or we're claiming that he's crazy and actually believed what he was saying was true even when it wasn't, the question to ask when you deal with these two things is this. Does that line up with his life? Does that actually square up with the life of Jesus? So when you look at his life, I mean, look here in chapter 7. It gives you, John gives us a little bit of an insight. There at the end of chapter 7, we didn't read it this morning, but it's a fascinating encounter. These uh, religious leaders, they had what was called the temple police, okay? Great job, right? So you just, you're like a hall monitor for the temple, okay? And so you had to do what these religious leaders told you to do. And so there at the end of chapter 7, they tell, go get Jesus and bring him before us. And so that's their job. They've done it. Please, like, remember the context. They had done this over and over and over again. You know how many criminals, people that had broken the religious law, that they had to march in front of these religious leaders? They had done this time and time again. And the religious leaders tell them, watch out because he'll deceive you. And so they go to get him. And there at the end of chapter 7, they come back and guess what they don't have? They don't have Jesus with them. And the religious leaders are really upset. Why? Because you guys have never done this before. Every time we tell you what to do, you do it. Now you come back and you don't have him. Why don't you have him? And they say, because we've never heard anybody talk like him. Not any of you guys. It's the way he teaches about God. I'm not touching him. You know they're risking their job, their family's security, their reputation, to not apprehend him. But because they were so drawn to him, he was so convincing, because what he was saying was so true, they couldn't do anything but follow. But maybe you're thinking, like the religious leaders respond there in chapter 7, they say, oh, you've just been deceived too. And maybe you're thinking, yeah, he's a really good deceiver. Of course they came back empty-handed. He just deceived them. But I want you to think about this. How is it that they come back empty-handed? How is it that everybody, when you read the Gospels, that got anywhere near Jesus was so utterly convinced that he was who he was claiming to be that they were willing to give their lives? Because think about this. Jesus got away with what no one else in all of human history has gotten away with. He claimed to be God and claimed to be the only way to heaven. He claimed to be perfect and without sin. So now, think about all the people in history who have also claimed that. Because you're like, yeah, a lot of people have claimed that. And you're right. A lot of people have claimed to be perfect. They've claimed to be God. They've claimed to have total power. They've claimed to have total allegiance from all of their followers. A lot of people have claimed to do that and hurt a lot of people. But guess what? All of those people, without exception, were dismissed. They were excused, like, no, that's not true. But why is it that in every single century since, Jesus has been accepted? All those other ones were gone. They all died, and they all stayed dead, right? (laughs) Jesus didn't stay dead, right? So you have this incredible thing. Every century, the smartest people in every culture, the most powerful minds, have come to find total and utter satisfaction in Jesus. Why? Because the people who live closest to him, they were utterly and completely convinced that he was who he claimed to be, which is why they were, not, they were willing to not only live for him, but to die for him and to die for the truth that he was who he was claiming to be. Jesus stands up in the temple and he begins to teach the people. And so you have this claim, he's a good man, he's a deceiver, he's a crazy man. And now you have people after they heard him teach that are saying, well, maybe he's the prophet. There in verse 40, that maybe he's the prophet, meaning 
He's talking about Moses and the Feast of Tabernacles. Maybe he's the one in Deuteronomy that was prophesied to come, like Moses, to be a prophet for us. And then you have other people who are like, no, he can't just be a prophet. There's something different about him. And they say he must be the Messiah. Think about this. They're right there on the cusp of it. Three different times in our chapter, they come to the conclusion he must be Messiah. And then it's refuted immediately. They're like, no, he can't be the Messiah. Because we have a picture of the Messiah. I've already imi- I have an image of how he's supposed to look, and it can't be him. Why? And then they say this in chapter 7. They say, because the Messiah is supposed to be born in Bethlehem, meaning they didn't do their homework. He's coming from Galilee. So they're saying, uh, no, he wasn't born in Bethlehem. But we know, in fact, and John knew his readers knew this, that Jesus was, in fact, born in Oh, better than first and second. I was like, come on, 4th of July is over. You're listening to Christmas music. You better get that right, okay? <laughs> right? He's, he's born in Bethlehem, okay? Right? And so Jesus gives us this insight in this chapter that's so incredibly helpful. It was helpful to them because it was a challenge, but it's a challenge to us as well. It's one of those verses that you highlight and commit to memory. And Jesus says it right there in verse 24. He warns them when they're not doing their homework, right? He says this, stop judging by mere appearances. Stop working from this picture you have of me and instead do the work. Judge correctly. Put the effort into finding out who I am and when you do, you will find out that I am who I'm claiming to be. And G.K. Chesterton, famous English writer, he, he made this clear for me. I just appreciate his writing when he wrote this. If you found a key lying in your yard, so picture this, right? You pick up the key, and you try it on all these different locks that you have, and it doesn't work on any of the locks until you get to one, and it opened only one lock perfectly. What would you assume? Though it could be a huge coincidence, you assume that the most rational explanation is that the key was made by the locksmith who made the lock. The key was designed for the lock. Now, he says, here we have the teachings of Jesus, and his teachings that he was the Messiah, that he was the Christ, were given originally to a culture, a pre-modern culture, thousands of years ago. And yet, those teachings have found such universal validity that in every century, some of the greatest thinkers have found it fulfilling and satisfying. In every century, in virtually every culture, Christianity has taken root. In every area, Christianity has inspired incredible works of art. Today, Christianity is rapidly growing in cultures and in nations in which a century ago the name of Christ was not even heard. If it's really possible that his teachings given to a pre-modern culture can have this kind of universal validity, if his teachings so match the lock of the human heart, does it make sense that they're the teachings of a deceiver or a lunatic? Doesn't it make more sense that they are actually devised by the lockmaker? You see, Jesus isn't simply your model to follow. We like to say that WWJD or we've reduced discipleship to simply being do what Jesus would do if Jesus were you. Those are fine statements. But what I've found is that when we reduce following Jesus to behavior modification, live like Jesus lived and that's it, you forget to worship him. Because he's so much more than your model. He is that, but he's so much more. And we have to dedicate our lives to making sure we answer that question clearly over and over and over again. Who is Jesus? So that the people that are around us, we can help them answer it as well. Now, I've butchered this guy's name for three services, uh, but Antoine de... I'm not going to say it right. But he uh, really well summarized it this way. He said this, If you want to build a ship, don't drum up the men to gather wood, divide the work, and give orders. 
Instead, teach them to yearn for the vast and endless sea. See, when it comes to helping other people see Jesus, we don't just tell them to change their behavior. We teach them to yearn to be with the God who created them. And then they'll see with clarity when they yearn for God that there's only one way to do that, and it's through Jesus. Let me close this way. About uh, 11 or 12 years ago now, um, a man here in our church named uh, Richard, who's a a dear friend, uh, a mentor, um, came to me at a Bible study. We stayed after for a, a little while, and we were discussing a problem that he had. And the problem that he had was that he had a very close friend named Brian who was not a Christian. And he wanted so badly for him to see Jesus. He wanted him to answer, who is Jesus? But every time he tried to talk to Brian about Jesus, Brian had all these images that he had got throughout his life. He wanted nothing to do with it. I don't want to hear about Jesus because I already know about him and I want nothing to do with him. See, his friend Brian had been to war multiple times. He'd been wounded in war, and he was a really rough guy. They had met, actually, because Richard was a competitive shooter. And so he was on a team with him. They struck up a friendship. But every time Richard said, I bring up Jesus, he wants nothing to do with it. It's hostile. He just won't talk about him. But I want so badly for him to see Jesus because he's not seeing him. He's not answering that question right. And so he said uh, to me this day, he goes, look, he won't talk about Jesus, but he goes, Rob, he he said he sure loves Duck Dynasty. And in my brain immediately, I thought, what does that have to do with anything, man? (laughs) Like, what? He's like, you know, those guys are Christians. They're strong Christians. and, And he'll talk about Duck Dynasty, but he won't talk about Jesus. And so we talked for a while. And we came up with the idea, like, hey, why don't you write those guys a letter? What's the worst? Like, maybe they never get it. This is the peak of their fame, remember. Maybe they get it, maybe they don't. And so Richard sat down and he penned this letter and he wrote Brian's story and how deeply he wanted Brian to know the Lord. It's about four days later, he gets a phone call and it's Phil Robertson on the phone, the patriarch. He says, Richard, I got your letter and I want you to know I get a lot of mail. <laughs> so there's only one way to explain why we happened to pick up your letter that day and we read it. Why don't you bring Brian down to Louisiana? And so that's what Richard did. He got Brian, and Brian got excited. I get to meet Phil Robertson, and he drives down, and they pull onto that land that you've seen on the TV show if you've watched it, and there's the trailer, and there's the pond, and Miss Kay comes out, and she greets them, like, for real. And they go in, and they sit around the table, and I'm probably frog legs. I don't know what else to eat, but they, you know... (laughs) And so they, they sit around the table, and Miss Kay and, and, and Phil and the family, they're there, and they're talking. And, and halfway through the meal, Phil looks at Brian. He goes, Brian, let's go for a walk. They get up, and they walk. He says, they're gone for a while, and we see them coming down the trail, back toward the trailer and the pond. He goes, they walked right past us, and they walked right into the water. He says, that day, Brian answered the, cre- the question correctly. He was baptized into Christ. All because his friend wanted him to answer that question correctly. Who is Jesus? He finally answered it right. And it wasn't long after this picture that Brian got to go be with the Lord who he met in those waters. His eternity changed. Because he had a friend who had answered the question every day, who is Jesus in my friendship? Who is Jesus? i got to tell him. He's not seeing the real Jesus. i got to help him see the real Jesus. And as a result, his friend's life changed forever. He's so much more than a model. Every day it's important that we answer this question. Who 
is Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for Jesus. Yes, Lord, we thank you for the model that he gave to us of how to live the blessed life. But he's so much more than that. And so, God, we need your help. Would you help us once again to come to see with clarity who Jesus is? Father, we thank you so much that we have the opportunity to worship him and every day answer that question. Would you put a fire in our bones? to answer that question every day and to help the people that you've entrusted us to be around to help see him with more clarity. So like Brian, we can long for the day when we see them with Jesus in eternity. And we'll trust you for that in Jesus' name and all God's people said.